babies, and welcome to Poker in the Ears. I'm Uncle Daddy. I'm Joe Stapleton. Him over there. He's my work wife. He's James Hardigan. Happy Azerbaijani Civil Aviation Day, Joe. And at this point in time, I've reached the conclusion that I need to stop wasting time looking this stuff up. I don't think it needs to be accurate anymore. I mean, I could be making it up and you'd be none the wiser, right? It does sound like a Mad Lib. I'm just so glad that the word after civil was aviation. I thought it was going to be something like happy Azerbaijani civil war. I'm like, what are you doing? It's a day for planes. We had paper planes last week, and now we've got real planes, albeit civil planes, in Azerbaijan this week. Flying in on today's show, it's Poker Movie Monday, recorded on a Wednesday. Released on a Thursday. And this time around, it is a Western. It was called Five Card Stud. And not only are we chatting about that poker movie, but a whole lot of soupy, super nerdy <laughs> film stuff to go with it. Soupy too. <laughs> uh, because the reason this movie ended up on our radar is connected to poker. Yes. And one of my club quarantine friends, Penelope Bartlett, who is the director of programming at the Criterion Channel. She was inspired by our home game to do a whole month of gambling-related programming. And Penny is the guest on today's show. She's going to join us for our movie review. And we're going to talk to her about her love affair with poker and movies and how one gets to turn both of those things into a very cool job in the business. This week's super fan is longtime listener Evil Roy who will also be quizzed on the film Five Card Stud. And at this point, I'm going to take you behind the scenes on this episode of the podcast. We always say, Joe, that the idea of the show, or one of the original ideas of the show, was to go behind the scenes on some of the stuff we do. Now the snake's yeah. really eating its tail because I'm going behind the scenes <laughs> on the podcast. I had to go through the initial draft of the running order for this show. And every time Joe wrote Five Card Draw, I had to change it to Five Card Stud. <laughs> I, I actually have no recollection of accidentally writing five-card stud, but I don't doubt it for a second. Thank you, James. Thank you, because I'd be saying five-card draw now, too, even though I watched the movie yesterday. Uh, live poker in this part of the world is back up and running. Don't be too jealous yet, because I've got a couple of uh, HHs. That's what I call hand histories now from wow. uh, a live... <laughs> a live Dude, I'm, hey, I've been spending time in the lab. I was going to say, say HH. all these contributions that you make to poker speak, right? All of the terminology, all of the language of the game, 99.9% of it has come from the mouth, the desk of one man, Joseph Stapleton. That's right. HH is now, guys, in case you want to be up with the when live poker comes <laughs> back. Uh, I'm going to kick things off today with a major movie announcement over the weekend, holiday weekend. My friend Lauren came by, producer of the movie The Card Counter, and she on her phone had the trailer. Oh, how cool is that? But just to be clear, you've already seen like a, a work print, a rough cut of the whole movie, right? I've seen the movie. I think I've already said I've seen it, and I think I've already said I was pleasantly surprised with how much I enjoyed the movie. I was nervous, right? Like not yeah. to be not to be a jerk about it, but I was just nervous. Like, oh, and I really, really enjoyed the movie. I really enjoyed the trailer. Um, and what I will say about the trailer trailer that I loved that I love that I'm so happy about is that the people who are marketing this movie, right? So. 
those of you guys, most people out there know it's not the director that makes the trailer. It's not no. the producers. It's the company that's selling the movie, right? Absolutely. And of course, I think at this point, it's worth saying a very famous example of that was the trailer for the film Suicide Squad, where the studio, Warner Brothers, loved the trailer so much that they had the company that made the marketing materials to then go back and recut the movie in the style of the trailer. And guess what? People who specialize in short form commercials aren't necessarily best placed to make long form narrative cinema. Right. Now, the people who made this short-form commercial for the card counter, I think, did a fantastic job. But my favorite thing they did, James, and you'll be happy about this and everyone will be happy about this, is they are aware, the marketing people are aware that a card counter is not a poker thing. No. And that this movie does involve both blackjack and poker and other forms of gambling. But it's important to them that they don't sound like they don't like the movie doesn't know what it's talking about. So there's enough blackjack in the trailer that then transitions into poker in the trailer. So they like immediately address this. And that's something that the company actually spoke to me about personally. They were like, it's not really a poker thing, right? And I was like, I'm glad you know that. And they're like, yeah. good. We want to make sure that we don't confuse people. I mean, and that's the biggest thing that you must have encountered as someone who is involved in this production, as the poker consultant on this film, Joe, is when people hear there's a new poker film and it's called The Card Counter, their hearts immediately sink, right? Because it's like, oh God, Hollywood's got it wrong again. Yes, and luckily the movie it doesn't really get it wrong, despite what the what the title makes it seem. And the people who made the trailer just address that right away in a two cool. and a half minute thing. So I'm super super glad for that. The trailer, uh, it, I'm very very excited, and hopefully we'll be able to, uh, you know, it'll be out there soon. I don't. I was going to say, do you know when it's being released? Is it going to be on? I assume it'll be on like IMDb and YouTube and all those places. Yeah, I don't. I should have asked. I should have said when is this uh, this trailer actually coming out? And maybe I don't know. Just maybe I probably shouldn't even broach this, but maybe I can get it for us close to what you know. It's the internet. Everything comes out instantaneously. I probably can't be the first person to have it, but I could be one of the first people. So I'll have to see about the timing on that. Um, just to pivot away from poker movies for a minute, take a quick little break for, in this part of the show where we usually do it. Have you watched now, this is something we discussed a lot between the superhero stuff and we've you know we're 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 semi Zack Snyder fans on the show uh, more like you know we want his movies to be good more often than we love his movies I would say um did you watch Army of the Dead yet? Uh, no, and I feel guilty because I said last week I would please give me another seven days. I have been binge watching never have I ever on Netflix, which is the Mindy Kaling comedy oh, series. Oh, yeah, I watched most of that. It was cute. I think it's really nice. Uh, it's real feel-good TV, and it's also just very funny. Um, so let's save Army of the Dead for next week. I do apologize. Sure. I just, I, I'm sure I watched a bunch of movies this week, but the one I wanted to mention was because Yafit Kato is in Five Card Stud. He is. Um, hey, I said it right that time. I didn't even think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, is a stutter draw? Five card stud. Um, I I watched because Charles Grodin passed away. I had seen Midnight Run like maybe, I don't know, seven, eight years ago and didn't quite get what everyone loves so much about it. always felt it was a massively overrated movie. And I know that's not a popular opinion, but it's never been on my list. So, so I rewatched it recently, at, like within the last couple of days. And um, actually, my girlfriend's mom was visiting. I was like, what's a movie that like appealed to all three of us? I was like, let's watch Midnight Run. Um, and I 
liked it better this time and definitely laughed more often and kind of got right. a little bit more of the humor in the first time, but I'm still there. I'm still like, yeah, the movie's fine. Like, I don't get why it's such a classic and why people revere it so much. And unfortunately, because the guy just passed away, everyone raves about Charles Grodin in the movie. He's like, fine? Am I just not getting it? I don't no, know. I'm kind of with you. Again, not a bad film. Just don't understand why people put it on the pedestal that it's been placed on. Um, look, I need to know about the poker because last week you talked about your trip to Mexico. You went to the yeah. wedding and we had this very dramatic Joe gets home, bolts the doors and is never going out again. Uh, cut to Joe goes out to play poker. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So the, the main issue with the travel was more of like a an international travel airport thing is what I felt like it was. So uh, I, I had a meeting down, like the two casinos in LA, the big ones, right? The Commerce and the Bike are right near each yep. other. And I had a meeting down at the bike. And I was like, well, as long as I have to leave my house and it's, and I, and I, the meeting was at 11 and I was like, I'll play the the noon daily at whatever, you know, and they didn't have one at the bike. So then I drove over to the Commerce. There was 1 p.m. daily there and I was 125 bucks. And I was like, you know what? Fine. All right. Like, I'll just, you know, my whole day is kind of, I wouldn't say shot, but I'm already like out in like an hour from home. I might as well just play this tournament and it'll be painless, right? It'll be, it'll be painless. It's like 125. It's a turbo and you know, whatever. I'll, I'll just play like kind of aggressively. And if I yeah. can run up a stack, great. Well, it's very difficult to run. First of all, I always forgot. There's always like little asterisks in these tournaments, right? Like it's 125 but there's a $100 add-on that you can take at any point. Right. I thought it was um, going to be one of those where, and if you give an extra 15 bucks to the dealer, you get double the starting stack. If you pay an extra $5, you get the optional 500 chip add-on, you know, all that kind of nonsense. It, it is like that, except there was $100 instead yeah, of $100. Yeah, that's excessive. Yeah. And so when they came around asking about the add-on, I thought it was like the end of the add-on period. So like immediately I'm like, here, here, I, I got I got to have the chips. Well, no, you actually could have taken them when you go broke too. Like it's one of those things where it's like part rebuy, part add. So anyway, so now I'm in for 225. Right. First of all, one needs to read the T's and C's before one signs up. Yes. And then I was like a couple minutes late. Uh, because I I forgot and good you know they don't let you eat in the tournament area anymore so I had ordered like a hot dog <laughs> to get yeah to just, just, the small issue of a global pandemic Joe that's just changed how things roll Correct. at the moment which is fine I'm not arguing about that I just forgot for a second so I'm like <laughs> woofing down this hot dog in like the eating area where you like stand by yourself in a corner and lower your mask and like squeeze a hot dog down your throat so I get to the table <laughs> and I've missed the first couple of hands and the very first hand I play. Uh, I get ace ten suited at like second to act, um, and I, I three exit and get four callers. What do you mean um, three exit? What is this? Two thousand and seven. So I didn't mean to three exit. By the way, sometimes I do mean to three exit. In this case, I didn't mean to. I just didn't know what the blinds were even yet. Oh, for heaven's um, sake! I mean, it's one thing not understanding the add-on rules, not knowing what blind level you're at. That's pretty bloody basic. I just sat down and like I didn't. I'd There's rather only a clock on the wall. That there tells is a you. clock on the wall, but I thought it'd be more important that it look like I knew it was going on rather than be like, uh, 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 "What's going on?" So I just threw some chips out there. And I ended up 3Xing it, which, like I said, there's a, I, I tend to 3X in these tournaments anyway. Um, and this turned out to be true because especially eventually the dynamic of this table was 
everyone was limping every hand or min raising, right. and we were going like eight ways to the flop. So I tend to three exit. So we go like six ways instead of eight ways. So how many um, people called your three X open? Four people <laughs> called my three X open. <laughs> um, and so it was two two people in middle position, and then the blinds, right? Okay. So the blinds you understand, but then there's two people anyway. Um, so I have ace ten suit. The flop comes eight four five. Uh, none of my suit. Oh, well, at um, least this is a very easy check fold situation. Correct. So I'm only telling you this situation so you can see, so you guys, sorry, now you will be jealous over live poker after I tell you these two stories because um, I don't need to go through all everything in the hand, but the flops eight four five. there's action on every street between two players. There's a showdown, and the two players showdown king four and queen five after action on every street. and Wow. To be fair, one of the guys was in the big blind, but the other guy was directly to my left who was in the hand. So, <sighs> offsuit, by the way. Queen, King four and queen five, action wow. on every street, showing down pairs. They didn't even, like, improve on the hand. Um, so I'm like, okay, okay, all right, live poker's back, live poker's back. Yeah. yeah. Next hand, uh, not next hand, but the next hand we're going to sure. talk about here. Um, I have ace-queen off in middle position, and... Uh, there's an under-the-gun razor. Blinds are one and two. He makes it 400, and I make it 1,200. Now, I don't, again, I don't love raising ace-queen anymore, uh, re-raising it, but again, I don't want to have a situation where we go six ways to the flop, um, and now now I've hit a queen, right? And I don't know if someone has queen eight or like, yeah, you know, yeah, whatever yeah. it is. So, um, so I make it 1,200, and we end up going five ways to the flop this time. Jesus. And the flop comes king, king, five. Just out of interest, I know it's a turbo yes. structure, Joe, but bear in mind these are the early levels. Is this one of those tournaments where they give people just far too many chips? Like everyone's got like 100 or 200 big blinds and they literally don't know what to do with a stack that size. Yeah, I think that right now, so the blinds are one in 200 and I'm pretty sure we st if you added on, you yeah. had 30,000 in chips. Right, so effectively it's too deep. For a turbo where people are clearly willing to gamble, they're just like, I'm going to see yeah. every flop. I'm going to see every flop because I've got the chips I can call. Exactly. Um, so I, let's revisit. I'm going to see every flop, actually. Um, so the flop is king, king, five. And um, this is what I'm talking about when I say that sometimes I think doing commentary hurts me, right? Because, like, if let's say that we're playing in one of we're, – we're watching one of our tournaments, James. We do coverage of king, king, five. I have ace, queen. You're like, most people are going to like stick around for a street, right? No, gonna... no, no. Not in a five-way pot exactly. in a 125 daily at the commerce. Exactly. I mean, so this is, this is an easy check back. That's assuming the action even gets to you. Correct. So the, the original razor lead slash continues. I just immediately fold. No big yeah, deal, right? Absolutely. I don't deserve a medal for it, but I'm just going to fold. There's one caller uh, to this bet, and it's the guy who had queen five before. Okay, the guy who called from pretty early position with Queen Five. Okay, off. so the player we're now calling Queen Five guy. Correct, Queen Five guy calls. The turn is a nine. So the board's the, now King King Five Nine, right? Correct. The original raiser bets again. Queen Five guy calls again. The river's a nine. So it's a double pair board now. Kings and nine Correct. to the five. The original raiser now, the guy who raised, bet, flop, and turn checks, and now Queen Five guy. Bets 2,000 into like 18,000. A tickler. A tickler. That's right. A little, I don't know what you want to call it. Um, g 
gets called, and Queen Five Guy now turns over Jack Nine for a full house. For but a full house, on calling the, okay, a pre-flop. So calls a three-bet pre-flop with Jack Nine a little bit loose. Calls the continuation bet on the flop with Jack Nine on a King King Five board and catches runner runner to make yes. a full house. Some people are just blessed. So this guy, James, his his VPIP, I'm not joking with you, was 100%. He played every single hand. He had all of the chips at the table because he just did not miss for about two full orbits and then out. And, and wow. then, like, in a matter of three hands, he was out. You knew it was going to happen, right? There's just no way you can play yeah, yeah. that way. Um, and the rest of the tournament, pretty uneventful. Uh, the reason why I I got pocket fives eight times. So weird. And um, it's sort of like I know that, like, set mining really isn't, like, that recommended in most poker tournaments, but like in 15 minute levels, and everyone it's going like eight ways to the flop You're every probably time, getting true odds, let alone implied odds, right? And so, I just missed all eight times with my pocket fives, and the other seven times I had other pocket pairs, um, none of which got to showdown, lost two flips. Uh, basically for my two big hands after that. Not really much of a story here other than I just wanted to help tell people that live poker is alive and well. Get your vaccines. Keep doing what you're supposed to be doing in your country to get live poker back because it is going to be a feeding frenzy when it finally comes back. Uh, 33rd place out of 150 entries. Thank you, Joe, for that report. Of course, not in the, not every part of the world do we have live poker yet, and certainly uh, the events that we would normally run, things like the EPT, we're still a long way from having anything on that scale back, uh, and that's why we continue to revisit the glory years in PokerStars Retro, these streams continuing on Thursday afternoons. Uh, we've covered all of the early years of the EPT. We covered the first couple of seasons of the Asia Pacific Poker Tour. We are currently taking a journey through season three of the LAPT. And last week, Joe, uh, we had the event won by Nacho Barbero. And we also had this weird, weird cash game that was positioned as the Team Pro Challenge. And most of the players in the game were members of Team PokerStars Pro back in 2010. Plus a couple of wild cards including neil channing i still don't know why neil was in uruguay for that event but played in that <laughs> televised cash game um but again really fun poker uh very much the type of poker you were just describing in the 125 dollar event at the commerce uh, i'll be interested to see what this week's stream brings do you you don't have any idea yet do we even know what country we're in i have not even checked of course by the time you hear this podcast, it'll probably have happened already. That's the weird thing. Uh, retro continuing until mid-June. Of course, the podcast going on summer break as soon well. But we do have a vacancy for a superfan the week after next, Ooh. which will be the final episode before our summer break. And Joe, I have an idea. Okay. Obviously, our guest today works for Criterion. Criterion is a company I've been a huge fan of for several years decades i collect criterion edition dvds and blu-rays back in the early 1990s i tried as an impoverished student to convince myself that i could invest in a laser disc player just so i could buy the criterion editions of the early bond films that's how 
much I love Criterion versions of movies. One of the Criterion editions I love the most, and I even bought it for you as a gift, is a film called The Battle of Algiers. You still haven't watched it. I take this as a personal insult, and I realize the only way I'm going to get you to watch this fucking movie is to insist that it's a super fan subject and to get some poor schmuck to volunteer to come on the show, compete against you in trivia on this fantastic, very serious, but excellent movie. And in exchange, I will offer not one, not two, but three Sunday million tickets. That's more Whoa. than $300 in value, ladies and gentlemen. If you are willing to volunteer to be the super fan, not next week, but the week after next, and watch the movie The Battle of Algiers and compete with Joe in that quiz. I mean, The Battle of Algiers is still in black and white, right? It's black and white. It has subtitles. But do you know what? And, and what? What? We will you talk expect about me to this. watch a black and white movie that also is a reedy? Look, whoever whoever is a super fan, you're odds-on favor to play the Sunday Million thrice. You need <laughs> to watch this film, not just for the purposes of research. If you want a film that explores ideas of colonialism, which explores ideas of resistance, and might lead you to a place where you understand or at least empathize with people who are willing to take their own life for a cause they believe in, this is the film to see. It is as relevant now as it was when it was made. And as someone who has a personal connection to the people in this movie, Joe, you have no excuse. It's a disgrace that you haven't watched it. Oh, you remembered that. You remembered. Unfortunately, I'm pretty sure my family was on the side of the colonialists. Like, I don't know the exact story, but I'm pretty sure that we're the bad guys in this one. It doesn't matter. So please volunteer to be our Battle of Algiers superfan for the last episode of the season. Uh, We are talking movies today. We are joined by someone from Criterion. It's time to talk, not five-card draw, but five-card stud. I know that is not the theme from the movie. We can't actually afford to license music from actual motion pictures, but it kind of sounds like it. Uh, I should say that joining us for this Poker Movie Monday is the director of programming for the Criterion channel, Penelope Bartlett. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, great to be here. Hey, Penny. Hey, Joe. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Uh, We are going to start off, if you don't mind, with a little of your poker origin story, what your relationship with poker is like. How did you come to playing Club Quarantine? Okay, yeah, so I've been thinking about this, um, and I think that I have to uh, credit or blame Lauren Wolkstein with my, um, my involvement in poker. So I met Lauren, I don't know, probably over a decade ago on the film festival circuit, and we've always stayed in touch. And when I moved to New York, I don't know, about five or six years ago, um, she mentioned to me that she was into playing poker. And I thought that sounded intriguing. And, you know, I got to know there were some other people that worked in film who also played poker. I also kind of have always enjoyed films about poker and gambling, and it's always kind of appealed to me. So I, you know, asked to be invited along to one of these games. Um, The problem I had was that I had absolutely no idea how to play poker. So I asked my husband basically to, to teach me. So my husband and I, he kind of 
taught me how to play poker, just obviously two-hander, you know, heads up, um, but taught me the basics. Um, that said, I was obviously still completely clueless as to what I was doing. We all um, are. <laughs> yeah, not that I'm like any better now. Um, so I think I played maybe four or five games IRL with Lauren and other people and various friends. And every time I played, I was absolutely loved it. Thought it was really fun. Again, still had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Uh, <laughs> but just, just loved it. Just thought it was really, really fun. Um, and then, you know, along came COVID and Lauren and Ron started putting these virtual games together and I started playing those and that was when I really got hooked. And yeah. clearly you still love poker and still love gambling in movies because you put together a season of gambling movies. Now, I was just explaining, I know Criterion from your physical products, from Laserdiscs to DVDs to Blu-rays. I'm very jealous because on this side of the Atlantic, the Criterion channel is not a thing. Um, how long has it been around and, and, and what is your job? Criterion Blu-rays are available in the UK. So Yes, that is true. Um, but sadly, yeah, not the Criterion channel yet, but we only launched it um, just over two years ago in the US. We just celebrated our second anniversary, which was very exciting. Cool. Um, and my job is director of programming. So um, deciding which films we're going to license and present on the service and coming up with fun, thematic, enticing ways of packaging them, such as... The gambler series right so let's have a look at what you could have won what else was in the series because the reason why this one leapt out is i couldn't believe that i'd never heard of this film oh, and wow. as a consequence we thought we have to watch that it seemed to be easily available it's got some big stars um so you know obviously it was an obvious selection but what else was in the series because i imagine there's a lot of films that we do know and maybe some we've already discussed on this podcast i'm sure so Obvious, well, probably the most famous film in the series was The Hustler. Yeah. Um, which is just a brilliant, timeless classic. Now, we've proposed doing a poker movie Monday on The Hustler, even though it's not a poker movie, because, and ironically, it's a poker player who we've mentioned on this episode already, Neil Channing. He always describes The Hustler as the best poker movie ever made, even though there's no poker in it. Because as far as the lifestyle, as far mm -hmm. as the culture, the mindset, that world, it's all there in that film, better than it's ever been captured before. I, I've never seen The Hustler, guys, so just oh, Jesus what? Jesus. easy Joe? on the spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would tell you to immediately go and watch it on the Criterion channel, but I think it actually left the service at the end of May. But you should be able to find it elsewhere, and it yeah. is just truly... So incredibly beautifully. I'm shot. more of a color of money guy. I prefer that one. I'm just kidding. Okay, I'm kidding. so I'm kidding. I <laughs> actually actually haven't seen the color of money. Uh -huh. That's fine. That <laughs> way around is fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, the hustler, brilliant, devastating, incredible film. Watch it immediately. And, well, and what else was on the schedule? Um, Hard Eight, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's great debut movie. feature. Really great movie. Um, I kind of went back and revisited that one. And I really think it's fantastic. And you can see a lot of his, you know, sort of stylistic preoccupations brewing in that early film, which is cool. Um, great performances from John C. Riley and Philip Baker Hall. Um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which was a little bit of a cheat, I felt when I rewatched it because there's not a ton of gambling in it. 
Hey, um, we're, we're used to that when we try and squeeze in movies that we want to talk about into a poker-themed podcast. Exactly, so exactly. It's, it's all good. It's all good. Um, but yeah, great Robert Altman film. And another great Robert Altman film that is entirely about gambling, California Split, yeah. of course, um, yeah. which I think is probably one of my absolute favorites in the series. Elliot Gould and George Siegel, both fantastic performances. Just, yeah. yeah, great movie for, I mean... It's really a great movie that kind of brings you into the world of the casinos and gambling and betting on horse racing. And, and it's like pretty accurate in many ways, even to this day. That's one of the few we, we did cover on this show before. Yeah. And I was I was surprised. I, you know, I was I'm always prepared to like not enjoy movies from past eras that much because like and I'm like, nope, this is like very relatable. Like this is really, really good stuff. Um, yeah, I was reading a, um, uh, an e- old Ebert review of it that was like saying that when you watch the film, you can taste the stale air conditioning in your mouth. And I was yeah, like, absolutely. That's spot on. <laughs> uh, so the film we are going to discuss today is Five Card Star. Just to give the background, 1968, directed by Henry Hathaway. And a couple of things I want to say in setting this up. The first is I kind of feel that this film would have been better remembered or maybe better regarded had it been made like in 1958 i kind of feel that the fact this came out as the same the same year as once upon a time in the west the fact that it was only one year before the wild bunch it feels really old-fashioned even from when it came out it's quite an Mm -hmm. innocent film and i can see why it probably was easily forgotten i did discover a hashtag fun fact which is that robert mitchum turned down the role of pike in the wild bunch to do this film that's a bad decision mr mitchum (laughs) oh no yeah, I saw that as well, and I was like, oops. Now, but- the second thing I wanted to say is, and bear in mind, we've already established, Penny, I can't get the Criterion collection, uh, sorry, the Criterion channel in the UK. I had to rent this movie from iTunes, and I really hope that the print that you had on your channel was better than this one. It was horrible. It was washed out. It was grainy. The audio was piss poor. There was visible print damage and distortion. It made it just a really unpleasant experience and I resented paying money for it, even though I'm going to claim that money on expenses. Mm, I'm sorry to hear that. And I'm also sorry to say that the version that's on the channel is not fantastic looking either. I guess no one really has put this top of their list. I promise Penny, no gotcha questions, James. How (laughs) dare you? I guess, look, not every movie is deemed worthy of restoration, right? And if you're going to prioritize films from the 60s, this is very low down the list. Look, (laughs) the irony is, I think we're going to start, because we always begin at the very beginning, with the best thing about this film, which is the theme song. Dean Martin singing, He Was King at Five Card Stud, which again, immediately dates this. No one makes films with the lead actor singing the title song anymore. Um, How has this song not stood the test of time? Everyone talks about Kenny Rogers. No one talks about Dean martin singing five card stud yeah i know it it is a really great song and i also love that they really kind of got their money's worth with that song because it's such a recurring motif throughout the film (laughs) there's like (laughs) there's like a comedic variation there's dramatic (laughs) variations it's like they just constantly kind of um recycle that 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 tune that motif throughout the movie um but yeah it's like I was watching it with my husband and he was like, did they think that, did the composer think he was scoring like a Bugs Bunny cartoon? This is like, he felt like it was very like overly comedic for the There's tone of so the film. There's so much. And the film also has weird comedy moments. 
Yeah, but I I found that a lot of the time the comedy music cues weren't during the comedy moments. They were yeah. during like when like someone had just been killed, and it's like ba da ba ba da da, and you're like, what what's happening here? Um, I've I, by the way just. Just to preface this entire thing, I will have lots of things that I goofed on. I just want to say, overall, I really like this movie. I didn't um, hate it, but I can I do find it instantly forgettable. Um, what I liked about it, uh, to the things I liked about it immediately, is like young Roddy McDowell, young Yefet Cotto. We already rec- uh, um, referenced that earlier on, Joe. Um, so good. He was so good. Absolutely. Dean Martin is the biggest problem with this movie. Because Dean Martin looks agree. terrible, is yeah. clearly on the source throughout, and is literally dialing it in. The song is the best thing he delivers in this movie. Everything else is kind of like, just pay me my money. Yeah, so that's <laughs> that's kind of what I thought too. Like I was, I I'd never seen a Dean Martin movie before, right? I know Dean Martin's a huge star. I know he's. You, you know, must one have of these seen the pe- Cannonball Run. I guess I don't. I guess he's in that movie. I mean, I he's even, even more sourced in that. That's like you know, ten years later. But I'm like, I, I don't mind the theme of this. I don't mind the story. Like, Dean Martin is bad. He's like really, <laughs> he's a te- is he always a terrible actor? Or is it just in this movie that he's, and I, also he has moments where like, he's fine. But then other moments where you're like, what is he doing? Like, is, is does he know he's in a movie? I think yeah, in movies I, where I he agree. makes an effort, he's better. Yeah, he's, He's not my favorite, um, really, as an on-screen presence, generally. And if I'm choosing, like, a Rat Pack persona, like, it's obviously going to be Sinatra all the way. Um, yeah. I, I completely agree that he is kind of the weakest thing about the film, and all the supporting cast are much better. Much but better. But surely the, another great thing about this movie is Mitchum, right? Yes, who we will come to shortly, because we <laughs> actually start the movie with the poker game, the only poker game in the entire film. And I have to say, I was here for it. We had a nice overhead shot, which is the easiest and best way of following the action. It played like a standard hand. There were no string bets. There was no straight flush versus quads. It was a very simple raise and take it on Fifth Street. And then, of course, classic movie cliche, Roddy McDowell exposes the cheat. If it's a poker game in a movie, there has to be a cheat. And then the most excessive punishment ever handed out to anyone cheating in a poker game is delivered when the guy is lynched. And it's like, well, this escalated quickly. Yeah, it's it's pretty brutal. And here is the weird thing, right? Dean Martin tries to stop it, is knocked out by Roddy McDowell. And after he kind of comes to his senses and he's helped out by George, the bartender, Yafet Kotto. The next day he rides out to the Evers ranch, walks up to Nick and punches him. And here's my question. Why doesn't he just report him to the marshal before he leaves for Denver? I mean, this was a murder. I mean, what kind of code is taking place in this card game where it's like, you know, five guys just basically murdered someone, but Hey, you know, you don't, you don't tell the authorities on this about this, Make no sense. But some of them he's kind of buddies with and it's the Wild West and there's that kind of unspoken code that he wouldn't, if he went to the sheriff, he wouldn't just be handing in Nick. He'd probably, you know, the others would also be incriminated. I don't know. I haven't, I'm thinking about this literally right now for the first time, but that's <laughs> that's my best like explanation. Yeah, I could get past that a little bit too and just chalk it up to like, it was the Wild West and... Um, <sighs> It is. I mean, I feel like that 
maybe a hanging was like a acceptable punishment for cheating in a poker game. It may have been a little too harsh for for Van Marcus or whatever his name was, <laughs> but um, <laughs> Van Wilder. Uh, you know, it may, have, but it's it seemed it's that was fine. Like I that didn't bother me that much. I didn't. I but I also like. It, it took me a while to understand what the plot of the movie even was. Right. Um, it wasn't entirely clear to me that they were rounding up people from the poker game until it was like the fourth person. Like, I was really Oh, slow. Jesus Christ, Joe. I mean, this movie <laughs> spells it out. I mean, this is not a hard movie to follow. This is absolutely punctuated with, like, very loud noises. Um, actually, That's amazing, were t- Joe. <laughs> there were two things that happened before he punches Roddy McDowell that I forgot to mention. The first is... When he snogs a woman half his age, it makes you feel really uncomfortable. Uh, the second thing is, and this I'll give the film a little bit of credit here, when it shows that hand that he has framed in glass, the one that Yafet Koto is talking about, which is like, oh, I've always wanted to know what your whole card was when you had like, you know, 10 to King of Diamonds. I was convinced, convinced that before the end of this film, that thing would get smashed and that card would be revealed. And it's never referred to ever again. And I like that. I agree 100%. Like, I really thought there was going to be probably like a shootout or something where the glass is smashed and you yeah. see the, that card. Like, it feels like that's completely set up. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't know if I was disappointed or if I liked it, but I had completely the same expectation. I was totally fine to have the decoration he puts up in his hotel room with him everywhere he goes <laughs> not being referenced again. <laughs> He won a big pot with that hand, Joe. Um, so yeah, Penny I Lee- love that that was all it was. That's his decor. Like, it wasn't foreshadowing. It was just yeah. like, look at his cute little memento. Yeah. So, Penny, you already referenced Robert Mitchum, who enters as the preacher. Uh, the other movie where Robert Mitchum plays a preacher, not Night of the Hunter, five-card stud, Jonathan Rudd. The only issue with this, don't you think the casting's a little bit obvious? Like, you immediately know, well, this is the guy who's going to be doing the killing because it's Robert Mitchum. You know, you put a star in that role, the guy who's second billing, and in the poster for the film is, like, facing down Dean Martin with pistols. It's kind of like telegraphing a little bit where this is going. Yeah, it, it, I mean, the film is definitely, except for apparently to Joe, not going to be rewarded yeah. for its subtlety. <laughs> I guess I'm probably overestimating the average viewer here. Um, but I, I mean, I love seeing Mitchum in that preacher role because yeah. Night of the Hunter is one of my all-time favorite movies. You know, I'm, I struggle a lot with people asking me what my favorite movie is because I get asked it a lot and I just find it impossible to answer that question. But it is one that I would cite as one of my all-time favorites. Um, And it's such a great Mitchum performance. So it's sort of fun to see him, you know, in that role again, but it's a slightly different twist on it. Um, And also I think the character is sort of interesting because he's a little bit conflicted. He, at one point he saves Stephen Martin, right? Um, When the vigilantes are attacking him. He does. Um, and he only goes after him because he finds out that he was there and he thinks that he was involved in his brother's killing. So he's sort of a morally conflicted character to some extent. I mean, once the guys figure out what's going on, once we have the guy who's found what drowned in a barrel of flour and the guy who's found dead at the side of the road strangled with barbed wire, it's a bit like, whoa, this is a kind of detail of gruesomeness that I wasn't expecting in a film of this era. Um, and then they're like, they gave him a new necktie or something really crazy I know. like that. <laughs> the, yeah, the, and the guys that take him down off of it are like a little disturbed by it, but not really. They're like, okay, well, time to get this guy out of here. 
So Dino then comes back to the town. Um, the weird thing is he looks completely clean-shaven to me, but still goes to the barbers slash brothel. <laughs> and, I mean, the guy is so disgusting, and yet the madam is all over him. I guess the only positive thing to say here is that she's slightly closer to his age than Nora is. Um, Wait, to be fair with the Nora thing, though, like, he... He seemed pretty not interested in her and just kind of like tolerating her. Like, it's not like he went in for the kiss with the much younger girl. Like, he very clearly. Then it's sort of weird that she would be so into him. That is weird for sure. (laughs) I was just expecting it more to be the other way. And this whole this whole movie, there's a sort of love triangle. It's a Um, subplot. This film does not need. And and bizarrely, he's just like fine with it, like with everyone just hanging out together. Like you're never really sure what he's actually thinking with these two women. So yeah, he's quite sort of passive. I was just going to add um, the the barbershop slash brothel. Did you notice what that was called? This was like a new no. word that I learned that I really love. A tonsorial parlor. Tonsorial I, parlor. I noticed that when I saw that, I was like, oh, it's going to be a bar, like stuff you drink, and then end up being a barber. Is there more? Is that an actual thing that barbershops were called? Yeah, I think it's an old, a really cool old timey word for a barbershop, like a sort of deluxe all service. You're going to see one of those in Brooklyn. <laughs> that have now. A like, meaning. There, there's going to be tonsorial parlors like in these, these hipster neighborhoods. I bet we're going to start seeing them pop up. Oh, 100%. The lettering is pure, like, Brooklyn. It's perfect. <laughs> um, so players from the game, people who took part in the lynching of the cheat, continue to be bumped off. We do have the love triangle subplot, and the two women meet at the general store in a scene completely devoid of tension. And then it all kicks off, and now the inner film student in me, I'm afraid, is going to come to the surface, because at this point, I start wondering if I'm watching some polemic about the Second Amendment, because we suddenly are exposed to the consequences of a paranoid society where everyone carries a gun. It's a total shit show. It's not clear who's shooting at who or why, which I think is the point. We are in the era of the revisionist Western. We are in the era where there was a lot of political comment on America's involvement in Vietnam. So I'm wondering, is this cinema as political statement? Maybe. <laughs> no, it definitely, I mean, yeah, the, the question of whether or not various characters should carry guns comes up a lot throughout the film. Um, but then the preacher is the one sort of preaching tolerance, preaching, you know, not to make it not, easier to kill people. Right. And then it turns out that he's carrying a gun in his Bible. So I'm not really sure. That's well. I guess we've had about a billion spoilers already. So, <laughs> oh, I think when doing a scene by scene review, everyone, I'm afraid you're going to get spoilers. I guess we should have said that at the top of the show, but better late than never. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um. So yeah, possibly. I mean, I do think it's interesting. We haven't mentioned yet that the film is written by Marguerite Roberts, who goes on the next year to write True Grit. Yes. Which um, was also directed which, by Henry Hathaway. Right. Oh. Um, which is such an important, you know, Western of that late era. Um, and, you know, obviously a, a really interesting writer who had previously been blacklisted and was only just getting work again in Hollywood. Um, so the likelihood that she might have been putting a political statement in there is certainly possible. Um it's based on a book which I know nothing about. It's also called out for its similarity to um, one of the Agatha Christie stories yes. um, where, you know, characters are sort of 
killed one by one, um, all in a sort of significant way. Um, I have not read anything really indicating that it has deeper underlying political intentions, but that's not Well, there you go. There. If you ever release a version of this movie on disc, I'll happily write the sleeve notes. Um, <laughs> so we do then get the reveal, which is not really a reveal, that Mitchum is the killer. But what is an interesting reveal is that Nick is the snitch, that Roddy McDowell is the person who's been feeding information. I didn't see that coming, to be fair. Even though Nick had actually said all along, someone's probably giving the killer names, which mm -hmm. I guess should have telegraphed that. Um and, I and think is this it is Nick the guy who doesn't he mention earlier on about the fresh flowers on the grave? Yes. Yeah. I just happened to be walking through Stranger's Corner in the cemetery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is the moment where the, the, obviously he then fingers uh, George, the bartender, who is the first innocent man to die. The only person you feel any kind of sympathy towards in this film and he leaves the clue to the killer's identity and it takes Dean Martin so fucking long to work <laughs> out that clue. Yeah. Although to be fair, it looks a lot like he was begging for his life. Right. Yeah. Or just, I mean, I, I'm so stupid. I mean, like I just, that's the way his body landed. Like, you, you can see, it's like he's thinking, I need to give some sort of signal. I know, I already said at the church, I don't believe in any of that shit, so they'll know if I'm praying that it's it's a clue to the identity of my killer. I thought that was pretty clever. I, I, I And then you realize, right, and I'm glad it worked out this way, but once Robert Mitchum kills George, you're like, okay, like, he has to, like, there's no, like, reconciliation for him at it's, this point. It's interesting, right? Because all along you're thinking, well, his motives are understandable. It's a classic kind of revenge Western in that way. And maybe he is the face of justice, right? These guys committed an act of murder and they're now facing right. the consequences. But even though he was pointed in the wrong direction, why would you ever trust Roddy McDowell in the first place, quite frankly? And absolutely, both have to face their comeuppance. And obviously, Nick gets his comeuppance from the preacher because he tries to betray him. And of course, the preacher has a gun in his Bible because it's that kind of movie. Yeah, I also think that it's kind of interesting, the relationship between Nick and his father. Um, you know, it's sort of his father clearly doesn't like him, thinks that he's, I mean, he's kind of like, he's a sociopath, he's a psychopath, he's like a deeply, just a horrible person. Everyone in the town kind of thinks this, right? Yeah. Um, so it's sort of interesting seeing, but his father still also really loves him and, you know, is devastated when he finds out that he's been killed. And I thought that was kind of an interesting, that whole family dynamic with Nick and Nora and the father, I think is kind of interesting. It was like when, when Nick opens up about what his childhood was like. You're like, okay, like I'm it's like kind of a chicken egg situation, like which psychopath created the, you know, really yeah. forced the hand of the other psychopath. One thing I was really hoping would happen which didn't and it's probably not worth talking about, but I really was hoping that that George wasn't going to die that when uh when Judd goes to the bar, I was really hoping what he would do is he would see how many seats were at the poker table. And realized that he had been given eight names, and there were only seven chairs at the poker table. And he would, and then we could have him be, have his character sort of come out of all this and and not kill an innocent person. But they did, and that's where the story goes. Yeah, and actually, I think it was one of the most effective moments in the movie. Actually, it could easily be incredibly naff, but when 
Dean Martin is literally the last person left from that game. And he sat at the card table and he's dealing the cards to the empty chairs. That actually worked for me. Same. Yeah, I like that scene. So we then get the final confrontation. They shoot each other. Mitchum's dead. Dino isn't badly hurt. And of course, he doesn't tell the family the truth. He doesn't tell them that actually your son was a homicidal maniac who kind of dealt out an excessive punishment for a card cheat and then basically snitched on all of his friends and had them all murdered. And I was kind of at that point, I'm kind of done with this film now. I'm happy for it to end. But And we had this, what was the film we reviewed last year? Joe, the big hand for the little lady. Yeah, that had that crazy sequence at the end where you had to find out what happened at the wedding. Postscripts and the scene where he says goodbye to Lily. It's like no, enough, be gone already. And time comes for Dino to get on his horse, ride off into the sunset, and we get the song again. As you said, Penny, we've heard so many different arrangements and iterations of that song, but we get Dino's vocal version one last time. Um. But yeah, overall, I, I don't disagree with your thoughts, Joe. I, I think it's a very watchable film. I think it's a fine film. My biggest takeaway, Penny, is I think you could do a real, a really interesting modern adaptation of this with a modern day poker game with someone being caught cheating and being punished and a revenge story and who the killer is. I, I, I think that there's, there's legs in the basic premise of this movie to make a better film with maybe some of the elements you were talking about just now, Joe, like subplots or certain kind of, kind of twists in the plot that this film didn't follow through on. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I, I am sort of a sucker for a, a whodunit um, and this type of premise. So I would, and obviously a sucker for movies about poker. So I would very much like to see that movie. Yeah, I just wanted to, I think James, part of the reason why that, and Penny, the, uh, the when Dean Martin's dealing to himself, right, in that hand, and also in the very first scene, what jumped out at me about him, probably the best thing about his performance, is he's a guy that's handled chips and cards before. When he's yeah. cutting out his chips in the very first scene, you're like, oh, this is like an authentic card player. And when he's flicking the cards in that scene also, this is clearly someone who's played cards before. And I think that that's something that, we notice as inauthentic in a lot of these gambling movies when you watch them, even if you don't can't put your finger on it, there's just something kind of, you know, when they don't have people that have played cards before, you can always tell a little bit. And to Dean Martin's credit, I can see maybe that's why he was assumed to be the choice for this, right? Like, oh, yeah, well, well Dean is a card player. Dean does his thing. And I thought that, you know, the concept of professional gambler in this time period I also thought was like pretty interesting and maybe there's other movies about it um but I would I would have watched more of this character also like I would I would watch more of his adventures uh just sort of based on his you know his sort of personality and and his approach to things and as far as movies that have like horrific relationships between men and women right that were of the time like this one wasn't that bad. Like, there's definitely way worse. <laughs> Emphasis on the word that. Underlined yeah, I mean, look, and involved. He's smooching, right? Like, he smooched a couple of people. Well, just it, the fact that he's this kind of irresistible man that every woman can't you know, wants to be with but can't have. And it's like, look at the fucking state of him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I looked it up because I was curious. So I was like, he looks really old in this movie. 
And I was like, well, it was a different time back then. Like people just age differently, especially a guy that was like, you know, a hard drinking, hard smoking dude. He was 51. Now, yeah. granted, he looks worse than 51, Agreed. but like 51 acceptable. I was afraid I was going to look it up and see he was like 38 in that movie. That's what I was really <laughs> afraid of. But no, he no, looks no. way older than 51, I would say. He does, but at least it was in the five category, <laughs> right? Like that, I was like, fine. Oh. So when you say that you would like to see more of this character, it's preferably played by someone other oh, than Oh, we're recasting Martin. for sure. Or we're Dean re- Martin when he's actually trying. Like, I assume he's been good in other movies before, or maybe not. Maybe this is just standard fare for him. But, like, D- Dean Martin at his best, I would probably watch play this character again. But, no, more likely someone else. I'm glad James brought this up. I, I just have a couple of questions about uh, how do you feel about remakes in general? Like, when movies get remade, if this movie got remade is that like a, a like a, a a cheesy thought for us to have like oh i'd like to see this movie remade uh i think it just depends on the remakes you know some have been great some have been not so great some you know some films are just so perfect that it just seems sacrilegious kind of to remake them and it's also just become such a common sort of feels kind of lazy kind of thing that just keeps happening now um but some of them are great i mean talk about true grit the coen brothers remake of true grit was pretty great yeah. Um, so I think it's really just case by case. Um, and sometimes you hear about a remake where the, the director just totally makes sense. Someone who would really have an affinity to remake that material. And uh, just another question I had about your job in general is that so for me, like I'm very much like, as you can tell from me saying, like, it took me a minute to pick up on this storyline. Like, I don't. I don't take movies in the same way other people do, um, especially our group of friends, Penny, like, you know, who are very artistic. You know, the, the sorts of films that I hear you and Lauren talking about are things that, like, I think I would have a hard time wrapping my head around. Um, as someone that's programming the Criterion channel, you must have to sometimes program movies that you don't get, right? That, like, that aren't your cup of tea, how do you do that? How do you make those decisions where you're like, well, I know a lot of people like this movie, but it's not really my thing, and I recognize it's good. Like, how do you, how do you remove that subjectivity? Yeah, I think that's sort of one of the first things that I had to realize doing this job is um, that I'm not just programming for myself. It's for you know hundreds of thousands of subscribers, and um, some films that I don't enjoy are still, you know, it's very important to show them because of their historical significance or their, um, you know, there, there's so many reasons that um, a film is important or needs to be shown. And even films that have not aged well, films that are dated are still often interesting to look at through that lens and, you know, think about what they, why they were popular at the time. And um, there's just so many reasons that a film can be interesting without it necessarily being that enjoyable now. Um, and yeah, of course, I'm, I'm also just like, like everyone, I have my taste, I have my likes and my dislikes, my actors that I don't like, you know, I really don't like, for example, Spencer Tracy, really don't like him. Um, just don't find him an appealing screen presence, but he's an incredibly important actor from the golden age of Hollywood. And so of course we're going to show Spencer Tracy films. So I really have to put a lot of my own tastes aside and um, think about what makes it, um, you know, an enticing experience for, for all of our subscribers. 
I think what I've always loved is that with Criterion, there's no snobbery. It's a genuine appreciation of all cinema. And obviously, you've got Criterion editions of films by Renoir, Carnet, Bunuel. But also, there were Criterion editions of Michael Bay's Armageddon and The Rock. Because it's like, it's just celebrating movies from all decades, from all filmmakers, from all walks of life. And, you know, they, they deserve to be discussed at the same table, quite frankly. Absolutely. Like, I think that attitude sort of pervades the whole company. And that's what I really love about working there. Um, I remember early on, um, my boss kind of green lighting me doing a double feature of Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal and Bill and Ted. Nice. Um, I can't, is, it, is it the excellent adventure or the bogus journey that has the Seventh Seal references? Bogus journey. Bogus journey. Bogus journey. Yeah. So yeah, that you know, he, he was like, yeah, sure. Let's, let's do that. Let's put that double bill on the streaming service. <laughs> and so, yeah, I th- but I think that's how we managed to keep people engaged with all of these classic films is by presenting them in ways that are playful and fun and have a sense of humor. And, um, you know, like the conversation, sorry, the conversation we just had about the film, um, you know, you need to be able to approach these things in, in a light way, you know, not all film not 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 everything to do with film has to be sort of cri- critical, rigorous, really heavy. No, absolutely. That's sure. how you get people like me to su- subscribe. You have to trick me, like <laughs> hiding a dog's medicine and some peanut butter. You get the good films in with the Bill and Ted's bogus journey. That's how you get Joe Stapleton exactly. to watch it. We give people vegetables and dessert. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um Penny, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for helping us revisit and review uh, this Western classic. Um, You're done with Five Card Stud. We are not because we now have a showdown more dramatic than the shootout between Martin and Mitchum, which I appreciate isn't hard. Uh, It's time for Superfan versus Stapes. And we welcome David Westervelt, a.k.a. Evil Roy, to the show. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Thank you. Very happy to join you guys. We're we're happy to have you. Evil oh. Roy, you've been popping up my Twitter feed probably for a decade now. I think we just went over the fact that we've met at least one time in Niagara Falls. You were at the Daniel Negreanu uh, Poker Stars Bash about when well, I was close to a decade ago now, I'm guessing. Um, six years ago. Six. That's closer to a decade. Uh, <laughs> in Price is Right rules, we round up to 10. Uh Tell, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, it's a story you've heard before, I think. <laughs> Played a lot of games as a kid. Big into math. Go to first year University of Waterloo with, or, which I think is a similar story to you know Steve Paul Ambrose, uh, and Odd Medics, or Mike McDonald Timex, possibly. Sir Watts, yeah, yeah. Will Ma. Then at that point, uh, you know, first year there, I had two choices. I could stay and get a math degree and be a chartered accountant, or I could invent time travel and go forward 20 years and try to be a poker pro. I chose the former. Well, how do you feel about that decision after seeing how difficult the game is and how truly, um, <laughs> how truly brilliant your competition would have been? Well... I think 20 years ago, I would have done okay, but, uh, but I'm happy that I had a good, uh, good career as a, an accountant anyway. So, and you're what? retired now. I am retired as of uh, a few years ago. Yeah, I just, uh, retired early. 
uh, didn't f- happy with doing what I'm doing now, which is basically nothing and occasionally <laughs> playing a little poker. That sounds amazing. Fantastic. When you said it was a familiar story, I thought you were going to say you worked in IT. Um, <laughs> So I was going to throw that joke in, but I came up with the time travel thing instead. Much better. We like original material. Um, So I'm assuming you are still in the great country of Canada and are therefore eligible to win a $109 Sunday Million ticket. I am. I'm uh, in Toronto, yeah. Fantastic. Um, So five-card start, as you know, is the subject. It's the movie that we've just reviewed. And obviously, when you are able to download the podcast for yourself, you'll hear our thoughts. But... Mr. Evil Roy, we want to hear your take on this movie. Um, is it one of your personal favorites? Is a film? Is it a film you have fond recollections of? I, I wouldn't say favorite, but it was it fond recollections. Yes, because I, for some reason, remember watching this at uh, as a kid, like before high school, in the high the high school that I eventually went to, gym. They were showing it in the summer, for, oh. and for some reason, I went to that. And so it's a long time ago, and uh, for some reason they're stuck with me. I guess it didn't seem overly. Now I watched it; it's not terribly sophisticated, pretty straightforward. But yeah, uh, yeah. some of the guys had some charisma. So I think I it, it, it being straightforward is the only reason I have any shot of this game whatsoever. I don't do well with sophisticated. <laughs> Well, bear in mind, Joe, that you've seen the movie within the last 24 hours. You've just spent the better part of 40 minutes discussing it in great detail. I'm sure many of the answers to these questions were brought up during our conversation, during our review. Patrick watched the film as well. He's put together this quiz. There are 10 questions, no bonuses, multiple choice options are available should they be required. David, as our superfan, as our guest, I'm going to ask you to go first and give me a number between 1 and 10. I'll just go with one. Going to start at the beginning. After Mace's funeral, the worst fight scene in history takes place. A bit of editorial comment here from Patrick. Who, <laughs> who are the two main characters in the skirmish? Who are the two who get into a punch-up in the graveyard? Uh, Nick Evers and Van Morgan. Wow, I only needed first names. You've given me last names as well. You get two points, sir. Wow, Evil Roy off to... Okay, good. Now, I the, the, the bar has been set. Here we go. Right. Um, I am going to always come seven, please. Question seven for Joe. Nice and easy. What four cards does Van Morgan have framed face up? He has the 10 through the King of Diamonds. Correct for two points, and we have a tied game. What number would you like next, David? Two. Question number two. Which U.S. state is the film set in? Colorado. Colorado for two points. Joseph. Question question 10, please. Question number 10. We definitely discussed this. What is it that gives away that Reverend Rudd is the killer? Uh, The... The flowers on the grave? Would you like the multiple choice options? Sure. I mean, there's lots of things that give it away, so I guess I'll take the options to see which one Patrick thinks gives it away. Is it that Van spots him and Nick talking? Van finds a cartridge from the Reverend's gun near one of the bodies. A Bible is found by Nick's dead body. 
Oh, George makes a prayer symbol as he's dying. George makes a prayer symbol as he's dying. And we have a 4-3 score going into the next round. What question would you like next, David? Three. Question number three. What is the name of the town that the film is set in? Rincon. It is indeed Rincon, and that will give you another two points. Joe. Okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm behind by one now. You are? I'll take question... What, I'll take the lowest number available, please. Sorry, Evil Roy. I know that's what you're going for, but I, 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 I got to stay away from number nine. Anyway. Okay, Patrick so fucks me with number nine every time. The last number available, Joe, is question number four. Um, what is the last line that Van says in the film? Ah, shit. I'll take the choices. Is it that will last you a lifetime? See if that wears off. But you sure didn't feel like iron. That's why you balance your three bet calling range. <laughs> this, this, I think it's this. Uh, this the sec. Read me the second one again. See if that wears off. Yeah, that one. No, it's. But you sure didn't feel like iron. The huh. previous line being, "If you're not made of iron, I'll see you in Denver." No points scored by Joe there. David, you can have five, six, eight, or nine. Five. What is the name of the saloon where Van plays cards in Rincon? Uh, Mama Malone's. Mama Malone's saloon for two points. You have eight. Joe, you have three. You need some points, buddy. Six, three? eight, or nine. Yeah. Uh, would you say six, eight, or nine? Yeah. Six. What is the first line of the title song, Five Card Stud? I'll need the choices. Was it, he was hard to beat? He was king at Five Card Stud. When he played, he played for blood. Or he went right on rambling round. He is king of Five Card Stud. They're all lines from the song, but yes, the one you chose is in fact the first line, and that gives you a single point. Uh, David, you're leading by a two-to-one margin, so eight or nine doesn't really matter. Uh, eight. Who directed the film? Uh, oh, I know this. I'll have the choices because I'm going to say it wrong. Is it Clint Eastwood, Henry Hathaway, Sergio Leone, Henry or Hathaway. Sam Peckinpah? It is indeed Henry Hathaway for a single point. And Joe, question nine... Reverend Rudd's brother turns out to be the cheat. What was his name? Uh, let's see. His name was... I want to say it was David, but I don't think... Uh, I'll take the choices. Edward, Frankie, Graham, Harry. Hmm. Harry. Frankie, do you remember me? Clearly he doesn't, because Joe did not get the correct answer to that question. <laughs> so we have a final score of four points to Joe Stapleton, nine points to Superfan David. Congratulations, you are going to get a $109 Sunday Million ticket in addition to some Pokestar swag. Thank you very much. I just want to say that uh, this past year or two, uh, year and a half, however long it's been, you guys have really helped. Just not just the podcast, the uh, 
you know, some of the broadcast, the stadium series I was really into and some of the other ones. Uh, and not only that, that my dad is kind of on his own. It, you know, my uh, stepmother passed away just before the pandemic and we've been playing, uh, been playing a lot of uh, play money on stars, uh, usually in Omaha high low and he's getting really into it. Won a couple of, couple of games and uh, it basically allows me to play with them almost every day. So it's been really good. Thank you very much. Hey, man, we're, we're so glad to hear that. You're very welcome. It does a lot for us, too. It's not just a one-way thing, you know, to be able to to ha- stay busy this year and, and to provide that sort of entertainment for folks and a platform for people to be able to stay connected was really important to us, too. So it's, it's a mutual appreciation. So we thank you, too, Evil Roy. All right, my babies, we're almost out of time for this week's show. We're almost out of time for this season's shows entirely. Just two shows left before we take our summer break. Coming up next week, we're going to have writer and producer, comedy writer and producer, Kim Caramelli on the show. Uh, You may be most familiar with her work from the sketch comedy show Inside Amy Schumer. I have just finished watching all four seasons. What a great show. Super underrated. James, I got to send you the Friday Night Lights sketch. I think I may have seen this on YouTube. Is that the one with Josh Charles? Yes. And yes. the giant glass of wine. It is brilliant. It is brilliant. It captures that TV <laughs> show perfectly. It's so good. It captures the TV show. What I love about that sketch that... I think the inside. We'll talk about it more next week. Inside Amy Schumer is kind of underrated for just really sort of capturing uh, themes, right? Of like pre- present day themes that sort of need to be addressed in a funny but kind of brutal way sometimes. So we'll talk to Kim more about that next week. Also, for tax reasons, I really need to start talking about video games more on the show. So can. <laughs> Can we talk about, look, I bought an Xbox this year. I bought a PlayStation. If those are legitimate business expenses, we really need to start talking about video games more. Obviously, you're reviewing movies on the show and you're watching them on your streaming app on your Xbox. I mean, Correct. there are ways and means of, of, of explaining it. Sure. Um, I haven't tried to play. I, I, you know, I've been taking a, a break from video games. I started to play the Avengers game and I started off thinking, this isn't as bad as everyone says it is. And then I got like an hour into it. I'm like, eh, it's pretty, pretty bad. That's why I, when I said I liked it, I had only played it the first, you know, hour or whatever. And I thought it was pretty cool. But then, and then, you know, who recommended that game to me was Kim Caramelli, our guest from next week. And by the end, when I finally caught up to her, she was like, oh yeah, no, it's not that good. Actually, well, she said the same thing too. In my case, it was Griffin Benja who said, do you know what? I think you'll like it. It's pretty good. And I caught up with him. He's like, yeah, I kind of got sort of halfway through and I'm kind of giving up. It's like, ah. Uh-huh. So basically, never take a video game recommendation from someone who's literally 60 minutes into like a 16-hour narrative. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think it could possibly fall off that much, but I guess shit happens. Um, And the super fan subject next week is the TV show Top Boy. Yeah, so I've been trying to ascertain which version and which season because you go onto Netflix and there's like, it's basically the first season of the 2011 show, which I think on Netflix is called Top Boy Summerhouse. Joe... When I say an entire season, there's only four episodes. So okay. I'm hoping, hoping that's manageable. Yeah, we'll see. It depends. I got to learn. I got to brush up on my reading for the Battle of Algiers in a couple of weeks, too. Um, speaking of both of those things, 
Uh, we need super fans for for that second one, especially. Uh, and also, all summer long, do not forget, just fire off your guest suggestions to us using the Twitter hashtag PokerInTheEars. We actually had a good guest suggestion the other week. Um, GJ and Pi, questioning whether those guys have actually ever been on the podcast. The answer is yes, because Georgina was a super fan back in 2017. That's right. But she has never appeared on the podcast as a guest. Certainly hasn't been on the show since she's been part of the Stars roster. Mason's never been anywhere near this show. So that's a good shout. Whether they're on together or separately, we'll put them on the list. We gave Tonka his first airing as a patched pro. So we definitely need to do it with those two guys as well. Awesome. Will do. Uh, Get your tweets in using that hashtag, folks. If you have anything to say, speak now or not forever, but for the summer, hold your peace because next week uh, we got two episodes left. Just to remind you all, that is all the time we have got for this week's show. However, until next time, for James Hardigan, I'm Joe Stapleton. Smell you later. Smell you later.